Hey, what's up, Fish Sauce family? It's Elton. And Wilson. And we're back again for another episode of Fish Sauce. Join us on a journey to explore the minds of successful Asian American founders, operators, and investors. As we discover their secret sauce, we hope you can find yours too. In this week's episode, we have Dan Yu, COO of NerdWallet. Dan was introduced to us by our previous guest, Robbie Kwok, and together they started the restaurant Stone Korean Kitchen. If you're in San Francisco, go check it out. Starting a restaurant is also something Wilson and I hope to do in the future. Dan and Robbie met during their banking days at Merrill Lynch and got reconnected when Dan joined LinkedIn to build out the function known today as Business Operations, or BizOps. It was Dan who made this one of the most popular roles in tech. Now, let's hear how Dan all got started and began his career. Do you mind walking us through kind of how you got to where you are today? You know, I think it started, you know, when I was actually at Georgetown in undergrad. So this is dating back all the way to 1998. I was just doing an internship and I was selling life insurance. And I said, well, you know, having a sales skill set will always be valuable in terms of my career. And I had a, a mentor there that was really helping me out. One of the days we were just in the office and just looking at the internet, which was really, really kind of pathetic back in 1998. But we saw some people starting to put at least some types of kind of websites together saying that, you know, if you want life insurance to call me as an agent. And we saw some like very rudimentary quoting engines. And we thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to do this cold calling? And people came to us. And so that that really started the kind of the juices flowing. And we said, let's let's try to build a term life insurance site. And the whole theory behind it is that, you know, as the internet gets bigger, as the younger generation needs term life insurance, they're not going to want to go to an agent uh, and have that agent come into their home and you know give them the sales pitch. That was kind of the genesis of the first startup that I was involved in. It was a fantastic experience just trying to like build the company from scratch, and we eventually turned that into a, you know company Reliquo. So in 1999, we were picked up by Forbes magazine as a Forbes favorite. And here we were like a three-person operation. Did it blow up? Seems like that kind of magazine would have given you a lot of leads. Yeah. So so overnight we you know from like three leads we got like 30, 40, 50 leads, (laughs) and so like you know the you know dollars started flowing in, and you know there's we were learning a lot in the process. But I had to make a really tough choice at this time. I had interviewed and received an offer from Merrill Lynch's technology investment banking group in 1999. You know it was the first tech boom. The internet was blowing up. And uh, I remember I interviewed uh, with a bunch of folks, including Robbie Kwok. I, I have a story where he tried to reject me. Him and I are obviously really close friends now. So I had to make this choice uh, between, yeah. hey, continue on with this entrepreneurial venture that was starting to take off or do what my parents wanted me to do, which was, you know, hey, after Georgetown, get an investment banking job so they could tell their friends. But, you know, I was really attracted to being out here in the Valley. I ended up taking the, the job and had a leave rely quote. At the time, it was a pretty difficult decision. But I had a very good formal training at Merrill Lynch, did investment banking. I, I was there at Merrill for about eight or nine months until the head of our group left to go to this place, Epic, Epic Partners. And Epic Partners was an investment bank that was trying to democratize the IPO process, trying to give IPO shares to individuals directly. You know, I went from Merrill over into Epic and Epic, you know, when right before kind of the bus or right during when the bus was happening, sold to Goldman Sachs. And so uh, we were all laid off and, you know, it was a really interesting time here in the city. 
where you would go and walk around South the Market and, you know, all these companies were closing down. You know, I would go to the gym wow. and the gym would be packed. And it was incredibly hard to get a job at the time. It was just uh, nobody was hiring. Uh, that was really tough. You know, but, you know, you get over those things. And, like, I, I guess when you're working out and having fun, like, so we were still going out. So we were having a lot of fun. And so, so you kind of get over that a bit and you think about what's next. And this was also actually with Robbie also. We, we took some courses at UC Berkeley uh, around technology. So databases, Unix. You want you know. to get more tactical? Yeah. Like, well, we were taking companies public that were in the technology space. My, my particular expertise at the time was around comp communications equipment, and like fiber optics, and Robbie did internet, which I always thought was a joke at the time. But, but yeah, we wanted to get some a little bit more technical chops because we wanted to understand what it was like to code or what it was like to think about what, what is a relational database? Like, what are the kind of inner workings of a relational database? How does communication equipment work? And to this day, I, I, I really think that it is valuable because to understand like what somebody's doing when they're trying to build something at a more, much more visceral level is better than like kind of reading or thinking about that at a very surface level. Robbie eventually got a job at, at Yahoo. I went back to ReliCorp. It was interesting to see like, because I, I was there when it was like three, four, five people. It had grown to about 120 people. This is a company you started, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is your baby. Did it feel unfamiliar when you got back to this company that was now 125 or 125? Oh, I mean, it was completely different. And I had known, like, obviously I kept in touch with Will, and I had known that the company had grown. But, you know, when you were back there and seeing, like, hey, like the, the level of problems that the technology team was working on or the fact that we were using predictive dollars, like, it was a completely different you know, company. In retrospect, I would have taken more time off, like for sure, one hundred percent. How much time off did you have? Probably maybe six months or something. That's so. not long at all. Yeah, it's not yeah, long at all. Long. But I was yeah. freaking out. Were you freaking out or were your parents freaking out? You know, I I can't remember how my parents were like at the time. I think I was freaking out. Like I you know, it was it was something in my head, like, you know, literally like I think we're programmed from a very, very early age that like hey, next year I'm going to go from kindergarten or first grade. Then I'm going to make this progress. Then I'm going to get this job. And, you know, my life had been kind of scripted like that. And so, What um, about your peers? Were they getting jobs? Or so, they were all so the same? Aside life? from Robbie that got Yahoo, like, no, they weren't. There wasn't an immense amount of pressure to get back in. There were so few jobs out there that were available. And, you know, I didn't even know where to start, really. You know, the reality is that I, 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 I was... Tr- you know, trying to be honest with myself about like what I was good at and what gave me a lot of energy. And that was always in like operating things, leading things, building things. It does seem like this opportunity could, you could have taken and continue it before business school. Are you glad that you did business school or do you regret that you've done it? Yeah. I mean, I don't regret business school, but I didn't have to go. I mean, I was at an undergrad business school. So I'd actually taken all the kind of functional classes for sure. And the reason why I don't you know, regret business school is that it was an immense amount of fun for sure. And I had like these great classmates at the time. In business school, I had a classmate of mine. His name was Josh Elman. He is a now a partner at Greylock. But he was, uh, you know, when we were chatting at the time, he had done, I think, one year of business school or not quite an entire year. And he had the opportunity to be the first product manager at LinkedIn. Wow. I remember having this conversation with him in, you know, in the Berkeley courtyard. And I said, Josh, I think LinkedIn could be $1 billion. He's like, oh, I don't know. We'll see. Like, you know, 
when I was at Berkeley, we did a class project. We had to pick a, um, a company and, you know, get deep in with the company and say, like, why we picked that company. I had four of, four of my other classmates at the time, and we called Josh. We said, hey, LinkedIn is like a super interesting company. We'd love to come and chat with you folks. And Josh Elman at the time set us up with conversations with Reed Hoffman and uh, Matt Fuller. Wow. We came up with this report about like, hey, LinkedIn is an exceptional company. This was in like, I don't know if it was end of 2004 or 2005 that we did that. And I remember our professor, you know, we had a presentation. There was four or five of us uh, presenting to our professor. And our professor looked me straight in the eye and said, Dan, there's no money in social networking. Uh, we had this big debate. And uh, I said, well, maybe they could do job listings or something like that. He was very kind of condescending, I think. Have you and, talked to him now? Oh, well, really? no. So I think I got a C plus on that project. Uh, when LinkedIn went public, when I was there, when LinkedIn went public, <laughs> I changed it out to Josh Elman and uh, a couple of our class members. And I said, hey, do you remember when our professor said there's no money in social networking? <laughs> so fast forward, how did you join LinkedIn? And yeah. What was that yeah. like? And uh, I was at Paratur, and then there was an opportunity to join this company, Rhythm New Media, that was doing like mobile video ads. Rhythm was a really interesting company. The interesting thing is I always had this affinity towards LinkedIn, both at Paratur and at Rhythm, I had used LinkedIn to recruit and recruit some pretty senior execs. And uh, one day, Robbie pinged me and said, hey, what do you think about LinkedIn? I said, LinkedIn is phenomenal. I think it's going to crush it. Pretty much like ended the conversation at that. And I said, oh, I don't know why he asked. Uh, then later on, you know, Jeff Wiener joined as their interim CEO. Or So when Jeff started there in December of 2008, and by... May 2009, he was looking to build out a business operations function. So Jeff had had business operations at Yahoo. At Yahoo, his business operations person was a guy by the name of Andrew Bracha. And Andrew Bracha is now a general partner at Excel. But the guy who supported Andrew Bracha was Robbie Kwok. So when Andrew Bracha left for this job at Excel, Robbie took over Andrew's role and essentially became you know, the chief of staff slash his ops partner for Jeff. And when Jeff had come over to LinkedIn, he reached out to Robbie, said, hey, I'd love you to build a business operations function. And Robbie, Robbie's a very loyal guy. And he said, no, like I'm happy at Yahoo. And there's still a lot of things to accomplish here, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. He said, but you should talk to my friend, Dan. Jeff wanted to bring, build out the business operations group under Steve Sordello, who's the CFO of LinkedIn. He was back in... 2007. He's still the CFO today. It was interesting. So I, I chatted with Steve Sordello and it was interesting. There are two, two areas of monetization for them was digital ads and the software as a service business. So I had experience with crazy software as a service and I had just done this digital. Serendipitous. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah. This digital marketing and uh, advertising. Top and so I literally could talk to the two heads of these groups. It was a massive advantage because, you know, even versus all the other smart people that they could talk to, like, I could talk in depth about what does it mean to scale out a software, you know, a SaaS business? What do the sales metrics look like? What defines success? You know, how would I be able to help them? Because I had been through all these problems. I think a lot of our listeners are curious about that role. Um, what are those skill sets? I do have a series of posts on LinkedIn that you could read about business operations, like, hey, if you have this consulting background or if you have this background, like, what would be a good fit? It's really interesting because the skill set is analytical and you have to be very good with numbers. You have to be analytical. You have to be data driven in the types of decisions that you make. 
And so, like, obviously, a lot of Asians, Asian Americans grow up with, like, hey, math is a very important skill set. I tell that to my six-year-old son. I say, oh, do you like reading or math? I do think growing up with that analytical mindset is really important. And, and both being, like, numbers-driven, but also, like, how do you, like, break down a problem? How do you think about something, break it down into its components, really understand what the drivers are, and then come up with a kind of lucid decision? You're not the decision maker. You're helping the decision maker. You're the person behind the scenes. You're not going to be taking credit. And the kind of handshake deal you have with your business partner is that you have a seat at the table and you have their time and you have their influence of like really big decisions that need to be made. And so I do feel that stereotypically, like those are like some of the areas where, you know, Asian Americans do great. Like they're analytical. And, you know, there's the stereotype of, like, the model minority. But there is a little bit of that, like, hey, I want to help something succeed. But uh, as a follow-up, do you yeah. think people get stuck in, in that role based off personality, based off upbringing? Yeah. Do you think they could eventually become the business partner? And oh, absolutely. But it's something, and again, this is, like, not everybody, but it's something that, you know, sometimes with Asian-American folks, like, you need to push them in that direction. And... They're not the first to raise their hand. Yeah, and it's direction. like uh, uh, and there, there may be that, well, I'm very comfortable in, the, in this role. And, that, and that's completely fine, by the way. Like having a seat at the table and influencing outcomes and all that is, is, is really interesting. But, you know, there are a lot of Asian Americans in business operations. At which point does someone have to make a decision? So you're kind of growing this business operations role. Maybe you're a manager, maybe you're yeah. a director. Is there a point where, in which they have to make a decision? I want to be the head of like BizOps or actually be more of like, you know, maybe a business CGM. owner, CEO, GM. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. To be fair, like those roles that are the GM or COO or like, you know, you are making the decision, even like a product manager roles, like those are the ones that are coveted in value. Hard to get. So there's a lot of people competing for those roles as well. So for, for the setup BizOps folks that want to be in that role, like you have to be able to influence, but you also have to be assertive. And I do find it's not just Asian Americans, but like I do find like the mentality of like for the greater good, like uh, Confucian ideals or like things like that, like end up potentially impacting people's careers because they're too good for that. You wrote a blog post, I think on LinkedIn actually, about why you left a high paying job at LinkedIn oh, yeah. to join a startup. Yeah. Um, I guess what advice would you have for our listeners? Because that takes a lot of kind of risk, right? To do yeah. a lot of that. And I think some of our listeners might be in good paying jobs now, really questioning within their mind, having that battle between do I switch or do I stay? Do I switch or do I stay? Or do I go to business school and then make yeah. a switch, right? Now, given all the experience that you have today, what is kind of the best advice you would give? I think every decision like this is a, a personal one. So I'll just kind of like walk you through mine. I wasn't looking for a job. It just so happened that, you know, I met with Tim Chen, the founder. He was in a industry that I was in a long time ago. And that when he showed me this industry, I'm like, wow, nothing has changed. So it was, a, it was really, you know, just nothing has changed in this industry. And here was somebody who had the guts to do it. Uh, NerdWallet was a bootstrap company at the time. Like, you know, I, I say Tim could have sold this company and been generationally wealthy just by doing that. And he wanted to do something much larger because nobody was doing it in the industry and wanted to be consumer first. How do you orient something that is really, you know, going to be on the side of the consumer in terms of, how they make financial decisions, learn about those decisions. You know, I saw somebody that I connected with and wanted to build a company with. And so it was a, it was kind of a fortuitous one. I, I mean, yeah, like 
cash comp is completely different by order, mega orders of magnitude. And so, you know, LinkedIn at the time when it was public and everything, and it was, you know, stock was vesting, it was like every month money, money was rolling into the bank account. And here's a situation where you stop that and money's rolling out. So the, the one positive thing for me was like, obviously LinkedIn had done really well. And so I was in a really blessed situation uh, to be able to do that and yet mm-hmm. still have lifestyle for my entire family conservative risk that's kind of yeah. right like it, it hasn't been like full on on risk <laughs> it has been like some level of like measured risk right was food not going to be in the table or were we not going to be able to go on vacation no i mean i think that you know linkedin had done a nice job of taking care of that and we didn't let our lifestyle explode or anything so obviously a harder one from my wife's perspective but like uh i think that it was a decision that i made with her together and you know something that we're saying like we believe in the ability to, well, first of all, from a leadership standpoint, I could have a lot more impact and give it, you know, roll the dice in a way that was kind of a measured way of, uh, you know, trying to impact an entire industry. So, so I think that that's, that was my own kind of personal decision. I, I think those decisions are always hard to make, but I try to extrapolate out like five or 10 years. I don't try to extrapolate of, oh, business school, like I have to spend money in tuition or stuff like that. Like, you know, extrapolate five or 10 years, see people who are like you in your situation and see what they've been able to accomplish. You know, so in a lot of ways, like if you go to that typical, maybe Asian American like ladder, you will have some level of success. Business school, like consulting after, you have those skill sets to, to rise as a leader. Let's talk about the ladder a little bit. So yeah. sometimes in people's career, when they climb that ladder, it's very clear that ladder is one step is actually clearly better. Call it analyst, associate, yep. BP, whatever, right? Yeah. What defines success? Is it number of people that you manage? Is it like valuation company? Is it like yeah. impact? What, what decides yeah, success? Yeah, I think you should throw all that stuff out the window. So here, here's an example. Like at Rhythm, I was an SVP of corporate development or whatever that meant. I, I mean, I was essentially like the number two operations person. At uh, Perature, which was about 120 when I left, I was a CFO. In, in our reality, I was like the CEO of the company as well there. Um, so I had like like bigger titles or whatever. And at uh, uh, the, the funny thing about LinkedIn is that when I joined, so even from a startup, when I joined, I took a $50,000 pay cut and I joined as a director. Most people that are title conscious, even though it's like a larger company, they're like, why would I take this like step down? <laughs> and this is where I say things like change rapidly. But my advice is like, you just kind of throw all that out the window. Like particularly in Silicon Valley, like, if you're going to join a startup, you are going to be an individual contributor. Like you're not going to manage a, a huge team. And so if you're at LinkedIn, that scale, you're going to have had a bigger team. So if you use only the bar of like, I need to manage this equivalent size team, well, you're severely limiting yourself in terms of the opportunities you can have. So here I was at uh, LinkedIn. I had a 120 person team. We probably had a headcount for another 40, you know, like, <laughs> and, and, you know, my team had like wide influence in the company because they were in every, you know, whether it's product or marketing or the monetization lines, like literally business operations and business analysts was everywhere. Um, so I had really good purview over the company. And, you know, here I joined NerdWallet and at NerdWallet, we didn't even know what my role was going to be. I just had connected with Tim and we knew he needed help scaling the company. So like, I didn't get all caught up into... Oh, what teams are going to report up to me? Yeah, and, about the mission, maybe. Yeah, like the mission, the your belief in the business, your belief in the impact that the team can make and the people around you. Yeah. And so, uh, so I'll tell you what's happened over time there. So I literally had like one finance person reporting up to me, and he had like 
12 direct reports or something like that. You know, as we evolve the organization, almost every year we've added specific parts of the organization to my org. Today, we have all of the revenue generating verticals report up to me. All of the, our content organization, which is our biggest content, you know, biggest organization in the company reports up to me. The business operations, business analytics the functions report up to me. We have finance reporting up to me, although we're going to make a change and have that report to the CEO. And then now we're going to make a change and have the marketing organization report up to me as well. Tim and I are just making best decisions for the org and how do we align what certain parts up with what other parts. And he has zero ego. He just wants his company to be successful. I never focus so much on like, hey, what does absolute next step has to be? And I consistently see people, again, overanalyzing those types of things. You need to get in the right company. That is like 80% of it. The other 20% is, yeah, you may want to like, Figure out if the right role, it has the right trajectory, all that kind of stuff. But it's like the same thing they say, um, don't ask questions or what seat on the rocket ship. Yeah, just get on the rocket ship, yeah. right, yeah. And, and, I, I, and I think that is just so spot on. My advice always is like, hey, be on the right rocket ship. Like, know the right place to be and then, you know, let your skill sets and stuff determine, like, what seat that you're going to have on it. We, we generally like to ask this one last question. Yeah. Basically, it's what's your secret sauce? What do you think makes you unique? And what do you think is that sauce that got you to where you are today? I think for me, it's really leadership. I, I, I used to always joke at, at LinkedIn that, you know, I was like an A minus student. And I was actually an A minus student my entire life. Like high school, my, my GPA was A minus. College, undergrad, A minus. MBA program, slightly more than A minus, but like still <laughs> right around A minus. Like there are definitely folks who are more analytical, smarter at what they do. They have deeper insights into particular you know, strategy projects. They are exceptionally bright folks, like the top 1% of the top 1%, something that would make any Asian American. <laughs> so, so, the, so those are, you know, so those are like a, a whole host of folks. And, you know, in a lot of ways, they, um, they enjoy working with me and they enjoy getting guidance and I could give them enough strategic direction, enough insight. I could help them with how do you maneuver in an organization, what the expectations are, part mentoring, part like giving definitive guidance, part like listening and understanding and learning from them. You have to have a certain level of intelligence and a certain level of you know expertise or knowledge. But all those things, like people will be better than you at in general. And so for me, you know, I think what's been successful is that combination of like leadership and being able to manage well and, you know, hopefully inspire some people along the way, you know, to, to achieve bigger and greater things. I used to ask people their math SAT scores on LinkedIn and like, I don't know, like half the team had like 800 on their math SAT. It was pretty crazy. Dan's energy was contagious. By the way, Elton and I personally use NerdWallet when we research our latest credit card. So check it out if you want some good advice. If you want to follow Dan's live action and thoughts, feel free to give him a follow on Twitter, at Dan Yu. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this very exciting episode. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Fish Sauce. If you like what you heard, like our Facebook page, Fish Sauce Podcast, and follow us on Twitter, at Fish Sauce Pod, for any episodes or latest updates.
If our mission resonates with you, leave a review on our iTunes page. We'd love to welcome you and your friends into our fish sauce family. And lastly, big shout out to our awesome editor, Christian Edwards, for making us sound better than we actually are in each episode of Fish Sauce.